Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. We are delighted that you're joining us on our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time, and it's a journey we can't make without your questions on the Word of God. So jump on in. Uh, There's a number of different avenues you can use to get your questions to us, but just a a breakdown on what kind of questions we are up for answering on the broadcast. Any uh, Bible passage you want to explore from Genesis to Revelation on the table here, how to apply God's Word, maybe to the personal challenge challenges you're facing currently, tough questions you've been asked about your faith in Christ. Uh, We would love to uh, hear those questions maybe you've been asked or maybe a question you've always wanted to ask, but you've never found a no harm, no foul, non-judgmental place to get those questions answered. We'd like to provide that for you. If you'd like to talk about the events of the day or even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy, we are all over it. Uh, But wherever we go, It's entirely up to you. It is your questions that determine the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. Joined here, as always, by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richard. Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, if you would like to join us directly, you can, of course, send us your questions by email at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like clarification on the proper spelling and timing of that, uh, of course, there's no limit set for when you can send us your questions, but when we will be answering them will be from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, and you can join us on our live stream on our website, which is calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A. A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be sent to our streaming page, where you can, of course, not only leave us your comments on the right-hand side of the screen, but for future use, maybe you're listening to us out and about on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, want to send us a question but can't engage with us in that way. The email address will be spelled out for you there. You can visit it anytime. If you'd like to join us on social media, YouTube is A Reason for Hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. The benefit is if you give us a like or subscribe, you'll be notified when we are going live in those respective realms. But since they are not realms in which we are sovereign, uh, who knows what or for what reason we will be silenced or taken down. That does happen from time to time. So if we aren't streaming on Facebook or YouTube, and it's not because of a technical malfunction, please feel free to join us on our website. They can't ban us on our own platform yet. As, uh, as of yet. <laughs> yes, uh, we'll make that clarification and look forward to your engagement. But note, the questions we'll be receiving will be sincere Bible questions. As long as they are sincere, meaning you want to hear the answer, they are about the Bible, meaning the substance of the answer is the Bible, then we will be happy to address it when it is asked in the form of a question. Note that will be what we'll be keeping an eye out for, and we'll be looking forward to engaging with you, but with all of that said and before anything really is said, why don't we take a moment to pray, make sure the Lord speaks more than we do, we'll get into our brief... Always a good thing. (laughs) Our brief prophecy update, and then your questions as they're coming in. Yeah. Father, thank you so much that we have this opportunity to be able to seek you today and to be able to uh, discover the amazing treasures and blessings we have within your Word. Deepen our understanding of uh, what it means to see life through your 
eyes, Lord, as your truth uh, impacts our minds. We pray, Father, that uh, your word would change our hearts and make us more uh, over into the image and likeness of Jesus. And, and Lord, we pray that uh, spiritually we'd be built up and given a closer, more intimate relationship with you because uh, we've sought you and because your word is spoken. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, very briefly, what is going on that we should be aware of? Well, it uh, appears that the uh, clock is ticking on the uh, so-called Iran nuclear deal. Uh, late yesterday, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid had a long conversation with President Joe Biden over uh, the uh, issue. Uh, experts uh, surrounding the negotiations believe that uh, there are just a, a few minor hurdles to overcome, and then Iran uh, will be willing to sign on the line. Israel, for its part, uh, is lobbying for a credible American military threat uh, to make sure that Iran pay, plays by the rules. You may recall that uh, in uh, previous agreements and uh, understandings, Iran has not uh, been uh, too shy about uh, lying, misrepresenting, kicking International Atomic uh, Energy Agency officials out of uh, particularly uh, sensitive sites and so on. Uh, Lapid uh, said that uh, world powers have got to get Iran to sign a much better agreement than the last one, uh, what the Americans themselves call longer and stronger. Such an agreement can only be reached with a credible military threat. So the Iranians see they will pay a heavy price if they decide to balk on the deal. Uh, the uh, European Union High Representative for Foreign Affairs, uh, the Iran talks coordinator, said on Wednesday he thought said he thought a deal could be reached within days. So um, you know we shared with you uh, how uh, unfortunately in a negotiation uh, it is it appears that the style of negotiation on this so-called nuclear agreement is that the Western powers say, oh, well, this is the limit we want on your nuclear ambitions. We don't want you to get a bomb. Iran essentially says that's unacceptable. And then uh, the Western powers basically say, well, that's okay. We'll uh, give you whatever you want. Um, it does appear that a deal is closer now than it has been in certain weeks and months. Uh, according to White House uh, National Security Spokesman John Kirby, this is due in part to Iran being willing to drop some of their demands that were not related to the deal at all. Uh, one of the big demands that they made was that the Iranian Republican Guard Corps be delisted as a terrorist organization, although that is the main arm uh, by which Iran does its terrorist bad deeds uh, throughout the world. Uh, the Iranians also uh, seem to be balking on uh, the ongoing International Atomic Energy Agency investigation into traces of uranium found at undeclared sites in Iran. Uh, the uh, Iranians do not want the IAEA to follow up on any of these probes, uh, but uh, the fact of the matter is um, uh, the West seems like it will cave on these things, uh, take the Iranians' word for it that they're not enriching up to the level of uh, uranium purity necessary for a bomb. Despite which, their public announcements that they have and the evidence we have to verify that. Yeah, which was uh, not a very good idea to begin with. So uh, the, what the Iran stands to gain from it, uh, a uh, about $100 billion in revenue would flow to Iran once this deal is signed. We have seen in the past what Iran does 
uh, with these kind of revenues. It supports uh, regional terrorism, particularly terrorism that is directed against Israel. And another interesting article in the Jerusalem Post today, it appears that Hezbollah is uh, doing a military buildup uh, near the Israeli border. Uh, the United Nations peacekeeping uh, forces that are supposed to prevent that from happening essentially are waving at them as they go on by. So uh, very interesting things going on there. We'll keep you posted on any details on this uh, nuclear agreement, as we've said, uh, because uh, the Iranians have shown a consistent commitment to uh, going around skirting, doing what they're going to do anyway. Uh, I think Yara Lapid's uh, words are... Uh, prophetic in a sense. Uh, there needs to be a strong military deterrent around there. According to uh, some other articles in the Jerusalem Post, apparently uh, President Joe Biden indicated that uh, the United States would allow Israel to do whatever it thought necessary to secure its defense. Now, what exactly that means in practice or what steps uh, Israel will take if they do feel that Iran is getting close to a bomb, well, uh, that's another reason to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, isn't it? And as well for our leaders, because for those of you paying attention at home, the United States has essentially signed itself up to be the number one financial supporter of international terrorism, and specifically that of those against Israel. Now, we all remember and remind you regularly that there is a curse on those who would curse God's people. And while we aren't directly... Right complicit in the terrorist acts, meaning that we're not sending our troops to bomb the apartment complexes and buses of the Jewish people. We are funding them, and by we, I mean our administrative leaders, which is why our prayers need to be for them. The scripture does tell us that the heart of the king can be directed just like a river, and that God can intervene in these situations, but also noting as well the consequences that we're seeing, not just in degrees of government incompetence or international intrigue, but I would legitimately say we have a lot coming to us now from our God. So make sure that your prayers are not only put into practice for those presently in power, but also that for those speaking in the United States that I'm speaking to, that how you vote in the future for future representatives will, of course, be just as prayerfully considered, because these actions do have consequences. The actions of a king, or in this case, an executive branch of our government, will, in fact, have consequences for all of us involved. Not ones that we want, not ones necessarily that God can't see his people through, but note, this is not good. Yeah. Um, just a quick follow-up question along this line on our uh, YouTube site from King Technology. Uh, I don't know if that's the name of a company or this guy is the king of technology. But suffice it to say, uh, a question about politics in the Bible. Why uh, are in the U.S. are Christians uh, mostly for right-wing politicians by atheists? Well, atheists are uh, for left-wing politicians. Uh, also wanted to know which party supports Israel. Democrats claim to support the Jews, but don't support Israelis' defense against Iran. Jews so, tend to support Democratic candidates, but Democrats do not necessarily support the interests of the Jewish community. Note that point. Yeah. There's a reason for that, but let's just talk about ideologies here. Yeah, uh, you know, I think uh, rather than uh, kind of a sweeping uh, discussion of party platforms, uh, King Technology, uh, uh, I would say uh, that uh, both sides, at least on their platforms, uh, tend to say they're supportive 
of Israel. But it really varies quite a bit uh, from candidate to candidate and uh, position to position. I would highly recommend that rather than just making a blanket statement saying, well, I'm going to vote for this party because they're pro-Israel, or I'm going to vote for this other party because they're pro-Israel, take a good look at where the candidates stand. Um, Ask uh, pointed questions about uh, supporting Israel, supporting Israel militarily. Uh, How do they feel about, say, uh, the United States making concessions like on the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal? Uh, These are really good questions to uh, be able to ask uh, because uh, essentially uh, you can get blanket statements from party leaders in general and sound bites that sound like people are saying the right thing. But uh, take a look at voting records. Uh, There are certainly some individuals that we could point to uh, in uh, prominent politics who take a vehemently anti-Israel attitude. I don't think it's uh, a surprise uh, to uh, see a uh, politician like uh, Ilhan Omar, who is a committed Muslim, uh, and uh, Rashida Tlaib, another uh, uh, representative in Congress, made um, really... Uh, very strong anti-Semitic, anti-Israel statements. And are voting according to those ideals, and that's the point. And there's also the area of concern in saying, well, just because your candidate says something doesn't mean they're going to vote, which is why my father mentioned voting records. What are some of the policies that they've publicly supported and campaigned for? And this is the area of concern. When a politician is put into power and doesn't fulfill their promises, that's on them. But what we can do and what we'll be held accountable for is doing our due diligence and saying, am I raising up this leader in my representative republic in order to protect those vested interests? I'll be judged by God for what I have acted on in my conscience, and whether or not they made good on that act of trust or not, fill in the blank for politicians, they also will stand before God. But no, we are not responsible for the decisions politicians make in light of these things. We just need to be informed about those issues. And for an informed Christian worldview, support of Israel needs to be up in the uh, primacy as far as things we're concerned about. Yeah, the uh, second question, uh, why are U.S. uh, Christians uh, mostly for politicians to identify as right-wing, while atheists are for left-wing? I think it comes down to pretty... uh, fundamental issue, and that is uh, the issue of abortion on demand. Uh, At least uh, in lip service, uh, the uh, Republican Party would uh, express itself as being uh, pro-life. And uh, because of that, uh, a lot of Christians who see that as a deal breaker, full disclosure, that would include uh, this program, myself uh, included. Uh, would uh, tend to say, well, uh, all things considered, I think I will vote for a person uh, that uh, stands for and defends the uh, rights of pre-born Americans. really does come down uh, to the, uh, the key fundamental issue uh, about when life begins. And we've talked quite a bit on this program about the fact that that is an answerable question. First of all, scientifically, uh, when you have a fertilized egg, you do not have an inanimate object. You have a being. You have a being with 46 chromosomes. Uh, it is a being that is human. It is a human being. Logically, uh, your life and my life all started 
at the moment of conception. The only difference between you, me, and a fertilized egg is time and nurture. That's it. Uh, Also, spiritually, passages like Psalm 139, God saying, uh, among other things, that uh, through King David, that your eyes saw my unformed substance in the days which were ordained for me uh, when uh, there was not yet one of them. You skillfully wove me together in my mother's womb. Uh, these passages, as well as a uh, very interesting interaction between uh, in utero John the Baptist and Jesus that we find in the book of uh, Luke chapter 2, uh, also tell us, uh, Luke chapter 1, I should say, also tell us that uh, from a Christian point of view, a Bible-believing point of view, uh, we believe that uh, pre-born life and post-born life are life and as such deserve protection. So uh, because one political party tends to side that way. That's probably why you see a lot of Christians leaning in that direction. Full disclosure, I am a political independent. People ask me often, are you a Republican or a Democrat? I tell people, no, I'm a monarchist because I serve a great king. I will vote on issues. Don't tend to get identified uh, with party identities. Kind of creates a little bit of tribalism, I find. Uh, I think if we uh, analyze and vote for candidates uh, rather than blanket labels, that's probably the safest place to be. Two key issues we've already talked about here on the program as far as informing our, our votes are concerned. Number one, are they in favor of defending the rights and uh, the life of preborn? Uh, individuals, that is to me a non-negotiable. Secondly, do they stand with Israel and uh, as such uh, invoke uh, the uh, wonderful blessing and uh, challenge of Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, God speaking to Israel there. So that's really why uh, we find it there. I take it you're you're probably uh, tuning in from somewhere outside the United States, but that's really a uh, big dividing line for Bible-believing Christians. It is that issue of life and support of Israel. All right. Um, Here's a question from Isaiah, who wants to know, and by the way, this may sound funny, this is a legitimate theory that's been suggested for people. Um, Is Satan a musical instrument, or does he have instruments on his body? Thank you. Uh, He gives a few passages, Revelation 5, verse 8, and 15, verse 2, both in reference to the cherubim having harps. And of course, it was also included the 24 elders. And if you look at the structure of the Greek, it's more in reference to the elders rather than the cherubim, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, In Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, both identify Lucifer uh, pre-fall Satan, uh, the adversary is what we call him now. Lucifer means son of the morning as the anointed cherub, and I'll read the passage that identifies him as that kind of angelic creature in a moment. But when we look at the passage, it not only describes his... uh, uh, his attire is very flashy, uh, but also that he had a role as are basically using musical instruments. The question is whether these are on his person or a part of his person. Let me read the passage, and I think it'll settle itself. This is Ezekiel 20, or 28 and verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. Say to him, thus says the Lord God. Now note, the audience to this pronouncement by Ezekiel is the king of Tyre and also a joint region in Sidon. Now, who were generally the people that populated these island coastal cities and the trade routes therein? They were the... Phoenicians. Yeah, Yeah. the uh, 
I guess, uh, proto-Philistines, if you will. But the Philistines being one of the Canaanites, they were more commonly associated with these people, were wiped out by Nebuchadnezzar, and so the majority of their legacy were these people that uh, unfortunately had very poor dealings with the people of Israel after the death of King Solomon. Now, when we look at the Phoenician Empire and their control, basically, the Mediterranean Sea, we see a very wealthy people, we see a very... uh, for lack of a better term, a very uh, peacock-esque type of culture. Just look yep. at me in all my glory. Yep. And the king of these people is called out on the carpet, not just by Ezekiel, but for the last several hundred years, going as far back as Isaiah and even Joel, to remind him that this pride is uh, not a good thing. Now remember that a human being is being addressed, but how is he being talked to? Because there is, in fact, unfortunately, controversy about whether or not this is even referring to Lucifer. But let's uh, take the point by point and ask, could this apply to a human being? You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, it goes on to mention them, and says at the end of verse 13, the workmanship of your timbrels, that's a form of drum, and pipes, a form of instrument through the wind, was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth that's familiar, in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. Now, when we get into verse 16, it goes on to note things that very much applied to the king of Tyre. Right. But in this uh, interesting, I guess, description of what once was and what unfortunately no longer is, Would it be accurate to say that the current king of Tyre, who was being addressed by Ezekiel, was also physically present during the time of Adam and Eve, or at least before the flood of Noah, when the Garden of Eden was still there? Yes. Was it possible for that king of Tyre to have lived in the Garden of Eden? Oh, no. 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 Uh, The the spirit that inspired the kingdom... The king of Tyre certainly yeah, would have been there. We'll get uh, yeah. into that more in a second. Yeah. But no, would it be accurate to uh, describe him as covered in every single form of precious jewel? Maybe, but I think that would weigh no. on him after a while. Yeah. Uh, would it be accurate to describe any human being post Adam and Eve to be perfect in wisdom and perfect in beauty? No. Once again, these are a very, uh, very. Phoenician, very peacock-like people. They might say this about themselves, but Ezekiel speaking by the Holy Spirit here. Who would accurately be identified by the title of one of the exalted ones, literally the cherub in verse 14, the anointed cherub? And by the way, what's that word in Hebrew, anointed? Uh, Mashiach. The same term for Christ. Now note, that doesn't mean that Satan is Jesus, but when someone's anointed, that means they're set aside for a very special purpose. Like David was the Messiah King of Israel, there were Messiah prophets, and so forth. But when we look at all these interesting details, we uh, have a hard time reconciling this with a human being. But we can see what brought up the topic, because if we read Isaiah 14, what caused Satan's fall? the same thing that's corrupting the king of Tyre's heart. It goes on to say, By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And we're back to Lucifer. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, 
from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. And it goes on to emphasize uh, that's going to stay that way forever. It's not hard to see or understand that in language, not just the English language, but any language, you're allowed to make comparisons where appropriate, but you identify the line between them through exclusive terms. If it's impossible for someone to be described as having existed at the time of Adam and Eve, as being on the holy mountain of God, to be classified as a cherub, and the same way be classified as a human being, well then we have to ask, where is the common feature? Both will be cast down by God. Both were lifted up in their pride. Both will be judged by God. And this right. is the point. So all that context then being made, I, you understand why I get frustrated when people make this, you know, bizarre doctrine surrounding angels and the gods of the nations and stuff, because it takes up time for us to share God's word to have to clarify these false teachings. That then being said, the question was regarding verse 13 in particular, the timbrels and pipes, they were prepared for you on the day you were created. So notice they were prepared for you. They weren't prepared as you on the day you were created. Likewise, there's a distinction between the instruments and the person. Likewise, we see the same in Revelation 15 and in verse 5. When we're looking at Satan's role, however, in heaven, this is giving us an idea, a hint into his purpose, much like the rest of the cherubim. What were they always interested in in Ezekiel 1, Revelation 4, and onwards? It was always the worship of God. Right. So noting Lucifer as being, or had been, one of them, he would have been one of these exalted ones, literally cherub. Uh, cherubim is the plural. So if we take that information and ask, so was he like a living instrument of the worship of God? No, he just had that purpose. That was an aspect of his original intention and design. Unfortunately, as a creature of worship, the object of that worship matters, and he chose to instead worship himself rather than God. He started to focus on himself and his beauty and wisdom, and as a result, corrupted it. So when we ask the question, and this is the part of concern, what is uh, Satan's nature, bio, or I guess uh, compositionally? He's not a uh, walking marching band, if that's no, the, no. the picture that's being made. But he was given these musical instruments associated with the worship of God to point out that was, no longer is, but was his original purpose. Note that point and uh, let us know if that's all clear. But hopefully in the foreground also the context of this is clear. It's not making a point that the king of Tyre turned out to be Satan all along. They had one thing in common, pride, and it was going to lead to their destruction. It's not making the point in saying that the spirit necessarily that inspired the king of Tyre is actually possessing him, or that uh, Satan's true dominion over this world is limited to the Mediterranean Sea. Not at all. It's making the point of comparison and saying, like Lucifer was judged, like Lucifer fell, so you will fall king of Tyre, and for the same reason. Right. Right. Let us know if that's clear. Yep. Um, Casey wants to know, is there a scripture in our Holy Bible, God's Word, <laughs> yes. love the uh, clarification yeah. there, where God would say in response to a person's question, what does your heart say or trust your heart? I, I think there's a line from Napoleon Dynamite about that. 
not the yeah, Bible. Tr- trust, trust your heart. That's what I always do. That's but, what Mormons uh, do, I guess. But in the, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, and verse 9, we are told, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So if you're going to trust your heart to do the right thing, that one is tough because really you can't know the uh, hidden motivations of the heart. Only God can figure all of that out. Uh, And if you've ever gotten into a situation where maybe you even did the right thing and you wondered if you did it for the right reason, you know how that kind of tail chasing is part of the human condition. Uh, In Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12, we are told, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. So if I look for the answer, like they say, look to the man in your heart for the answer. Um, you're probably barking up the wrong tree. If you find that answer, it might seem very logical. It might feel really good. It might look good on the horizontal, but it could be leading you right over the proverbial cliff. So rather than trusting in uh, the human heart, uh, we uh, have the opportunity to be able to trust, first of all, if we're looking for guidance and direction in God's inspired word, uh, it is just amazing how the vast majority of God's will for our lives is already revealed in his word. You don't believe that's true. We often talk about the Proverbs challenge. Just open up the book of Proverbs, oh, anywhere about Proverbs chapter 10 or so, start reading and uh, see if you don't come up with at least uh, two or three or four uh, direct uh, passages that apply to a particular situation you're in within about five minutes. I don't think it takes very long. Uh, then uh, secondly, uh, we have God's Spirit that guides us and directs us. We can pray and ask God for wisdom, and God gives wisdom to all those who ask. Well, how do I know it's God's wisdom, not the world's wisdom? Highly encourage you to take a look at John chapter, or James chapter 4, where God's wisdom is defined. It's first of all pure, then peaceable. It is uh, gentle. It is easily entreated. It is full of mercy and good fruits. It is uh, not without hypocrisy and without partiality. You know, sometimes when I'm looking at making a hard-called decision, I just go through those kind of characteristics and ask myself the question, is what I want to do or how I'm feeling about a particular situation in harmony with this description of biblical wisdom? But the most important thing that we've got to get to, if we're really going to understand uh, God's will and be led by Him, is uh, we've got to just decide, first of all, that we don't want our will, we want the Lord's will to be done, as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Great uh, scripture to keep in mind when you're praying and asking for God's will to be done, Casey. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. He'll get you exactly where you need to go. All right. Uh, Let us know if that's clear. We have another question sent along to us by email. Uh, This one, of course, is, I guess, uh, worthy of being kept anonymous. But the concern is, why does God give us desires if he doesn't want us to act on them? Uh, When it comes to any desire, obviously the problem people don't necessarily have is that desire. It's the fact that there is a wrong way to go about them. Um, They're mentioning something specific in regards to desires, but I think it can apply in a broad 
very broad series of ways. When we're talking about a desire for money, a desire for companionship, a desire for anything, there is a right and a wrong way to go about it. And this is oftentimes treated as a fault on God's part for giving us something that we could figure out a way to hurt ourselves with. Now, this is uh, understandable in the incompetent American culture that can just sue anyone and everything for anything. But unfortunately, God's not due on the court, so we just like to complain. When it comes to God having ethics, though, and God having a standard for which we ought to govern our desires, why would there be ethics? Yeah, well, (laughs) ethics external to us as human beings. Uh, You know, there's a famous uh, statement that trying to navigate uh, in a storm by a light tied to your own ship's mast is either going to get you hopelessly lost or on the rocks. That's the illustration. And What's the application? The, uh, the information that we have on this is in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 29. There Solomon observed, Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. In other words, uh, the, the reason that we struggle so much with ethics is because we're twisted, we're torqued, we are not the people that we are intended to be. And that's why God's Word needs to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, as Psalm 119, verse 105 says. Because, um, you know, again, people can fool me, I can even fool myself. But if I really want to understand what the right thing morally to do is, uh, I can't trust my feelings, I can't even trust my urges. But if I take a look at what God has to say about governing my feelings and my urges, then I'm going to be able to use them in a way that is uh, honoring to him. That's what it means when it says God made man upright. Uh, In other words, the emotions, the urges, the drives that we have, all of them in their proper place are good. The problem is uh, not the urges and the desires. The problem is what we do with them. Maybe another illustration will help out. Uh, If I, for instance, uh, light a fire in a fireplace and I have three logs burning on it uh, and it's a cold winter night, try to imagine that this time of year, uh, it's a real blessing. But if I take one of those logs out of the fireplace and put it on the sofa, I've got a disaster and the fire department has to be called. Same fire, but in the wrong place. So, you know, once again, it's not our desires that are the problem. It's what we do with the desires that's the problem. In fact, kind of an interesting uh, insight uh, philosophically and theologically, did you know that evil is not a created thing? Evil only takes what is good and what? twists it. That's the definition of perverse. Yeah, so uh, that's that's really the difference there. Has God given us desires? Yeah, let's, let's use an illustration. Has God given us the desires uh, sexually? Yes, he has. But in passages like Matthew chapter 19, Jesus indicates that, uh, in fact, strongly teaches that the place to practice our sexuality is in the one man, one woman, committed together for life uh, arrangement that God put together that we call marriage. If I uh, go outside the bounds of marriage before being married uh, and practice my sexuality there, the Bible calls that fornication. It's a sin. If I, after I've been married, have uh, intimate relations with someone who's not my spouse, I've committed adultery. But they misrepresent God's heart within that marriage concerning your treatment of your wife. That is also sin. Yeah. So once again, when we talk about the practice of our sexuality, the drive that we have uh, to uh, practice our sexuality, God knows all about it. But God has created a place of safety and intimacy and commitment 
for the practice of our sexuality. Uh, and uh, if we take uh, the very strong, uh, very powerful, but very fragile part of ourselves, which is our sexuality, and practice outside those boundaries, uh, we eventually are going to find ourselves in big-time trouble, which is why God says don't do it. All right, so the fact that there is a wrong way to do something isn't God's fault? No. Okay. No. <laughs> that comes up I, a lot. So Yeah, I think, I think we need to be clear on that point. All right, um, here's a contradiction in the Bible for today. Uh, again, there are good ones. This is not one of them. But uh, <laughs> the statement is, apparently the Bible contradicts itself on the fact that Mary was blessed. In Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, the Bible says, yes, Mary was blessed. But in Luke 11, 27 through 28, the Bible says, no. Mary was not blessed. Now, I go on to explain this on a semi-regular basis for all of you because it is just that important, and you'll hear these sort of things all the time, but I'm tired of repeating myself. Uh, Dad, have you grasped our two-step policy, and can you give it to the lovely folks? When someone brings up a contradiction, what are the two things we tell them to do? First of all, define what a contradiction is which is? That is the violation of the second formal law of logic, the law of non-contradiction. A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and at the same time cancel each other out. Right. So if it's accurately represented that A, Mary was blessed, and non-A, Mary was not blessed, are both stated in the Bible and cancel each other out, that would make the Bible incapable of communicating accurate information. Which brings up our second point. Show me the scriptures, not okay. show me the money, but show me the scriptures if you've got a contradiction. Well, unfortunately, they provided that. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, we read, Now it was the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. So we have the angel Gabriel identifying her as blessed. And in fact, we can note further on in the chapter that when Elizabeth is identifying her as the mother of her Lord, Mary, quoting, by the way, the book of 1 Samuel, says, all generations will call me blessed. And right. we affirm that to this day. Yeah. So was Mary blessed according to Luke chapter 1, not just in the verse they provided, but others as well? Indeed, that's the case. Now let's go to the cancellation. Apparently, in the Gospel of Luke chapter... Let's make sure, verse 11 and verse 27, we read the following. And it happened as he, that's referring to Jesus, spoke these things. A certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nurse you. Would that be in reference to? That would be Mary. Right. But he said, more than that. Not opposed to that? Not in cancellation of that? Yeah. Not a negation or, of that? Or no, you're completely wrong. My mother wasn't blessed. That he, would be a contradiction. But what does Jesus actually say? More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So we have an and statement, not a no, this is true. Right. 
So what would this be an example of? This wouldn't be a contradiction. This would be a misrepresentation of two passages. The person who said this is a contradiction isn't just making the statement. And note, we could be charitable and just say they don't know what they're talking about, but they gave us the verse. Right. And if they were able to cite the verse, that means they would have had to have at least read it, and under the assumption they knew what they were talking about, which is a big and charitable gift we're giving to our atheist friends And here. with the motive of promoting the idea among those who go to their website that this is something that disproves the reliability of the Bible. And hopefully to inform me as a Christian, because I'm believing in something that contradicts itself. They read the passage. They would have had to if they knew the citation. They would have had to, if they understood what a contradiction was, read the words, Mary was not blessed, or an idea that suggested that, even in the vaguest sense of the term. Yet what do we see? We don't see someone who was mistaken. Someone was lying about this passage. The only alternative is they don't know what they're talking about, which isn't allowed. If they use the word contradiction, they have access to a dictionary that defines a contradiction, and they gave the verse which states Mary was not blessed, when in fact it doesn't say anything close to that. No. So note, if you come up to someone who would give you this as a contradiction, they're either lying or they've been lied to. But this is pathetic. There's yeah. no other way to put it. Yeah. So make sure that you're not nervous when someone says, well, the Bible contradicts itself, because the simple response is what? Where and when? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the other wonderful thing that can happen is this, is if you can get even a skeptical person to start looking at what the Bible has to say, you don't just answer the objection. Boy, verse 28 of Luke chapter 11 is a great thing to share with a non-believer. Jesus said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You could very easily segue at that point and say, would you like to know why I believe the Bible is the word of God? Why a rational person would believe that this is not man's word about God, but God's word to man? What, how will we answer that question? Well, we would first start with the logical inference. Does it get its facts straight about human history? Not what we can't test, but what we can. And we have modern, ancient, and very well-renowned historians, or Sir uh, William Ramsey, to name one, who just in an excuse me, just in his examination of the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, said that the author who penned this, referencing Dr. Luke, was a historian of the first rank in their ability to not only recognize information, but the relevant information that a historian would care about, right. as well as the customs being consistent with the time periods that we read in, no anachronisms as far as the references that were made regarding ancient Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, and the other nations that interacted with Israel, in the records of the Bible, they all get their facts straight in what we can test. Now, if you want to know if there was a T-Rex in the Garden of Eden, you're looking for either A, information we can't verify because it's not written, or you're inferring absurdism into the text as a reason to dismiss it. But let's go off the evidence we actually have. Hopefully, their skeptic will respect that. Okay, so the first reason we believe the Bible is the Word of God is because it gets its uh, facts straight regarding Say past. human history and archaeology, correct? So starting with the past, we might notice this trend here, we have accurate information. Regarding the present, the substance of the information that we're given in the Bible, it's renowned by atheists and scholars among Christian circles alike, As and you can, don't just take my word for it again, the former, uh, he believes completely now, but atheist at the time, 
deist before the time of his death, Anthony Flew, one of the most prolific and probably one of the well last... Well-respected atheists, yeah. Yeah, oh, probably one of the last intelligent and consistent atheist communicators in the last 50 years. But noting Anthony Flew's opinion, he said, the Bible is one of the most marvelous works of ancient literature, regardless of your opinions on it spiritually. And in, by the way, he also was asked about this in context in comparison to the Quran, and he said, read the Qurans to do penance. So just take that as a point. Yeah. But noting its relevance in addressing contemporary human issues. The Proverbs challenge is just one example of that. You can note the Sermon on the Mount as the greatest summary written by psychologists today is saying, if I could uh, just, you know, modernize some of these words, I could just rewrite my doctrinal thesis and nothing would contradict this. Everything is in line with not just the past, but the present. And here's where we get into the fun stuff. Past and present but does the Bible also have something to say that would give us reason to believe it's from God concerning the future? Yes, absolutely. It uh, forecasts future events through the realm of biblical prophecy. We've seen it in the past. We are actually seeing it being fulfilled now. An example from the past would be Isaiah chapter 53. If you go to Israel, you go to the Israeli Museum of Natural History, as we had the opportunity to. You go to the Museum of the Book. Uh, one of the things on display there is a replica. The actual is kept in a very secure location, but a replica of the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, which dates to how old? Around 200 years before Christ, okay. so not something Christians wrote. Yeah. So in Isaiah, the Isaiah scroll, we, sign, we find Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant, which predicts in minute detail the suffering, the rejection, the atoning sacrifice, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus all in one passage. Read it on your own if you are interested in, in taking a look at that. As far as uh, prophecies we're seeing today, uh, boy, we've talked about this before, but in Ezekiel chapters 36 through 39, we see a successive series of prophecies. In fact, if you go to the Holocaust Museum, one of these passages is quoting about God bringing the people of Israel back into the land again. Uh, there is forecast within these passages that Israel would be exiled from their land for an awful long time, for thousands of years, and then they would be restored again. First they would be restored, the land would be restored physically, uh, then the people would be restored to the land, and then they would be restored to the land spiritually. There is also a prophecy that we find of a future invasion of Israel by a coalition of nations uh, that includes, uh, well, some uh, nations that uh, are uh, definitely cozying up and making alliances even as we speak. So uh, in the past, we've seen prophecy fulfilled. Even in our day, we're seeing prophecy fulfilled. The biggest is Israel being back in the land. And note, even in the prophecies that were written during these times, we have in the very famous uh, virgin passage, I believe it's Isaiah 7:14. Right. We also have an immediate prophecy that predicted the fall of the Syrian Empire within the lifetime, but not during the time it was actually falling. We could note during Jesus's lifetime, he predicted an event that took place 40 years after his publicly verified execution. And even if you're an atheist and don't believe he rose from the dead, how would he know not just that Jerusalem would be destroyed, but the temple to be demolished 
in the way. He described it in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 3. We can go on, but the point I think has been made. Regarding the past, the present, and the future, we have more reason to believe the Bible is the Word of God than most scholars would have to explain. They're an expert in their field, as far as the evidence is concerned. Skeptics claim that they want to follow the evidence. Go off the information that we have. Don't set up impossible rules that make your own existence impossible to prove. Go with the information we actually have, which gives us plenty to work with. Right. So if someone comes to you and says, uh, well, you know, the Bible contradicts itself, uh, here's your example. Uh, in Luke chapter 11 and verse 28, Jesus said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. We can share with them why we believe the Bible is the word of God, but we can also share that those who understand its truth are going to be blessed, supremely happy. Why? Because they're going to know the author of the Bible, that is the true and living God. Now, that raises another issue. How can a person who doesn't know the Lord come to know the Lord? Well, we have to understand some basic things. Number one, if you're watching this broadcast, listening on radio, and uh, you don't really feel like you have any kind of relationship with God, here's some things you need to know. Number one, God really loves you. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms in John three sixteen that God so loved the world, including you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In other words, the way that God has created for us to bridge the gap between God who is perfect and we who are anything but, to forgive us for our sins and the fact that we fall short of who God created us to be, was that God became a man in the person of Jesus. He walked among us, lived a perfect sinless life, willingly laid that life down on a cruel Roman cross to pay the price for your sins and mine. Uh, When he died, he said, it is finished. In other words, the price for your sins was fully paid. And we know that God accepted his sacrifice. How? Because he rose from the dead in a moment of history. We could talk about the evidence for the resurrection if um, we are so inclined, if you'd like to hear about that. But the bottom line is this. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. The Bible also says whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you've never made a decision to receive Jesus as your Savior, the Bible has this good news for you. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You can make that decision to receive Jesus right where you are. It doesn't have to be in church. It doesn't have to be at some dramatic point within your life. Right where you are, right with what you're doing. All you need to do is call on the name of the Lord through prayer. Maybe this prayer would indicate the desire of your heart. If so, pray it along with me. Nothing magical about the prayer, but uh, the Bible does say whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So you don't know the words to say, just pray along with me. Dear Lord, I believe that your son Jesus died for me. I believe he paid the price for my sins, and I believe that he rose from the dead. Lord, I want to know you. Please forgive my sins. Come into my heart. Make me a brand new person. This day, as best I know how, I receive you as my personal Savior. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer in the sincerity of your heart, welcome to the family of God. Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you'd like to get some more information that can help you get up and growing in your new walk with God, we would encourage you uh, to get in touch with us. You can uh, email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Give us your contact information. We'll be happy to get you our new Believer's Growth Packet. Uh, We would also, uh, if you're in the greater Tucson area, come by Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. 
We're located on the northwest side of town off of Prince Road and Interstate 10. You can see our bright red Calvary sign there from the freeway. Come on by during office hours or come by during one of our services like tonight at 6.30. And we'll be happy to give you uh, one of those uh, New Believer information packets uh, personally and pray with you and welcome you personally into the family of God. That said, um, here's a fun question from Dave. He wants to know, when Jesus prayed in the garden, this is before his crucifixion, he said to God, we'll specify God the Father, you'll see why in a minute, not my will, but yours be done. So the question is, how could God, remember the Father, and Jesus have different wills? Well, because we don't assume Unitarianism. Now, to speak in plain English, yeah. this is what, what does that we mean believe. exactly? Yeah, a Unitarian belief. Uh, Islam is an example of this, and modern Judaism is also an example of this. And uh, Jesus only Pentecostalism, which yeah. is a cult yeah. at that point. Yeah. But the emphasis that God is one being and one person. Jehovah's Witnesses as well. Yeah. Henotheist yeah. in that regard, but yeah. the point is being made here. When we're talking about God in his being and his person, you can say will in place of person. The point of emphasis is just that. We don't confuse categories in insisting that because human beings are one being with one will or one person, that God must also be one being with one will or one person. Right. The reason we come to the conclusion that God is one being is because it is absolutely clear the first principle of the Trinity, the first fact that makes the Trinity have to be a thing, is mono. Theism. Now, right. mono meaning one, and theos, theism, the belief in a god. Right. This term is describing of all the gods that could be given that title or attributed that kind of status of power, that's what god means, one with power, we're talking about there only and will ever only be one. How do we come to that conclusion? Because in the Bible we're told, Isaiah 43, 10 being one of the more direct ones, before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, the Lord, am one. I know not another. Right. If that's not clear enough for you, continue reading to chapter 48, and it hammers this home like a beating drum. Yeah. Deuteronomy 6.4, the John 3.16 of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So noting that then, and the kind of God that Christians and Jews are both working with, we have to figure out, okay, if there are is only one God, the being that is God, what they are, we have to ask, how is it that, and I like to limit myself to the Old Testament because people can't wiggle out of that and say, well, that's just your Christian innovation. Yeah. No, this has been the case from Genesis. The, the New Testament is the Christian clarification, but not an innovation. No, yeah. everything that we have in the New Testament is literally taken from the Old. When we go to Isaiah 48 and verse 16, Note that passage again is that section of Scripture that's hammering home monotheism to its core. For some reason, the Lord God speaking says, I have not spoken in secret, but for now I have been. But now the Lord God, I thought God was speaking. How is he referring to a will apart from his own? And his Spirit, so the Lord's Spirit sent me. The Lord and his Spirit so something conscious enough to send, and with the authority to send, along with the Lord, the Lord. And we can go on when we ask but the question. But there is no way that you could attribute that to Isaiah the prophet talking about himself. 
Absolutely not. He's talking about in that verse alone and going all the way back to verse 12 of the same chapter, the Lord speaking to his people and clarifying his coming to his people. And if we also note Isaiah having not known in secret from the beginning, then he's either claiming to be from the beginning, like John attributes to Jesus in John chapter 1, or he's blaspheming, or he's misunderstood. The point being made is that. that, That's an objection that does come up, but go ahead. Monotheism is the key, but in the New Testament we also see multiple persons, multiple wills, functioning apart from and independent from one another. That there are certain things, this is the second key fact regarding Trinitarian theology, not Unitarian, but Trinitarian theology, that there are certain things that can only truthfully be said by God, that the uh, being that is God has certain things that are exclusive to him. The most direct and simple is that they're the creator. And so if we go to Job chapter 33 and verse 4, where the Holy Spirit is given attributing as the creator, we note in Gen- or, uh, Isaiah chapter 60. Two, I believe, or is it 63, where uh, the far, Father passage, uh, now God, you are our Father, you are the potter, we are the clay, we are the work of your hand. Yeah. I'll clarify that direct reference, because I want you to be able to look these up on your own time, Dave, but the point of emphasis is just that, the Father is identified as such with this fact, that this is the Creator, and also that God the Son is the Creator, and we could note this in the New Testament, but I like to stick to the Old. We go to divine attributes and so forth. Uh, The passage speaking of Israel's future Messiah, what were some of the titles given to him in Isaiah 11, 1 through 2? To um, untested son is born, and son is given, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty Mighty God, God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, literally Father of Eternity. So noting these sort of things are what we're looking for when we identify God. The third fact is then this. (coughs) God bless you. How do we reconcile this information? Now note, if we are polytheists, then we just say, oh, so you got three gods there. There's no reason for us to say there must be this unique entity with one being and three wills or three persons. Well, that's a problem, because Deuteronomy 6.4 couldn't be more explicit. So what do we do? Well, we look at the Garden of Eden, or Garden of Gethsemane, we see God the Son having taken on human form and speaking to God the Father, independent from one another, functioning independently from each other, yet both retaining their status and identity as the one God. How do you figure that? He's God. That's it's allowed to be unique. He's allowed to be complicated. Right. The point of emphasis, though, is just that. As the Son is speaking to his Father, we're not saying that their wills are in conflict with one another. In fact, we saw from the Garden that they were in perfect harmony with one another. Jesus in his humanity simply expressed this through prayer, but note in that example we see the nature of God submitting to his Father even when it stressed him out to the point of sweating blood, and that's the point. So we don't say that Jesus and the Father had conflicting wills. They're in harmony as the one being that is God, but they're independent from one another because we don't assume the Son is the Father. Yeah, and uh, the, the fact that Jesus was God in human flesh is also very in- important to understand there. The other interesting thing about uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 is uh, there are two words that can mean one in Hebrew. One is yakid, which means one and only one, but the word used in this passage is echad, which means a compound unity. So uh, once again, the doctrine for the Trinity is foreshadowed there and certainly allowed. God bless you. We'll see you all tomorrow.
You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.